NVIDIA is up like 160% this year. And, you know, this is, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that ultimately you've got to have the earnings to support that price, right? It's great to chase the stock and it's great to run it up. But if you're trying to buy it now, you've got to say, okay, well, what is the thesis that's going to justify this price versus the earnings that they're going to make? Now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is Tuesday. It's the first trading day of a holiday-shortened week. That's right. Markets were closed yesterday, so... Good news is nothing happened yesterday. Markets weren't up or down. But um, anyway, we start, we kick off this week also getting to wrap up the month. This is, of course, January the 20th, 10 more days to end up the month. It's also the end of the quarter. So over the next you know uh, week or so, we're going to start to see kind of portfolio uh, rebalancing and window dressing. We talked about that previously. A lot of companies, uh, you know, mutual fund managers, pension funds, et cetera, that run balanced allocations of some sort they've got to readjust. So stocks have had a big run this year, bonds have, have, have been kind of sideways this year, so their portfolio tolerances are gonna be out of balance. They're gonna have to sell some equity, buy some bonds, those type of things. So could see some pressure on the markets potentially this week. Heading into that, of course, markets are looking to open a little bit softer this morning. Dow's down about 110 points. That's not surprising, right? I mean, we've had just a fantastic run since the beginning of the year. Historically speaking, when markets are up more than 10% by the end of June, which we will be unless something disastrous happens, um, then the end of the year, the last six months of the year, also tend to generate about 10% rates of return. So the outlook for markets over the rest of this year is certainly improving as we continue to get kind of more and more momentum behind the markets. And, you know, as we discussed a bit yesterday, consumer sentiment, and as we were talking about yesterday, we said, you know, consumer sentiment is a, a, a key factor here because as prices rise, people feel more confident about things, right? Because they see more wealth being created inside of their portfolios. So they tend to feel better about going out and spending more money. So consumer confidence tends to lead to stronger economic growth. And that continues to improve here. We're also starting to see a bottom in home builder sentiment. Home builder sentiment has actually turned up recently, and it looks like you know now we're starting to kind of get past the worst of that kind of downturn in the housing market. So we're starting to kind of see things begin to improve on the surface, not a lot just yet, but looks like we're getting more towards the end of this downturn that we had last year. We'll see how this works out, of course. You know, we still have to deal with the lag effect of a lot of this monetary tightening that's been going on uh, by the Federal Reserve. But that's also an interesting, you know, byproduct of the markets. And as we talked about before, the Federal Reserve is hiking rates. Why? Well, they want to slow economic activity, right? They want consumer confidence to come down here a bit and they want things to tighten up. So as the market rallies, it actually works against the Federal Reserve. And that's part of this easing process that the Federal Reserve is trying to reverse, right? So the more stocks rally, the easier financial conditions are. And that's exactly the opposite of what the Fed is trying to achieve. And how do we know that? Well, 
back in 2010, and we talked about this on the show previously, but Ben Bernanke, when he was launching the second round of quantitative easing at the time and starting that program, he said specifically that the whole purpose of QE2 was to lift asset prices in order to buoy consumer confidence. And as consumer confidence gets stronger because of higher asset prices, then that in turn leads to economic growth. Why is that? Well, 70% of the economy is based on consumption. So the better we feel about things, the more we go buy in the economy, the more transactions we do, which lifts economic growth. And that's in an economy driven almost 70% by consumption, that's a pretty big factor. So again, all these things kind of playing in, but you know, again, still there is some concern, uh, right? And, and you can't completely dismiss the concerns that are out there of, of weaker economic growth as we go forward. Higher interest rates are certainly going to weigh on that business. Um, but we're going to see that potentially that recession risk is getting pushed out further and further. You know, now we're out into 2024 um, for a potential downturn in the economy. We'll see when we get there. But uh, again, you know, markets are beginning to improve here a bit. So we do want to kind of uh, pay attention to that. We're starting to see an improvement in some some, not all of the economic data, but keep a watch on leading economic indicators. Leading economic indicators have been negative for 13 months in a row. If we begin to see that improve, right, if we start to see an improvement in the leading economic index, that's going to be your first real telltale sign that we've probably seen a trough in the downturn of the economic data. And then we'll see some improvement beginning across the board. But that probably won't be here for at least a couple more months. We've got to get through the summer months. And of course, there's still some risk there as we go through that. Um, this morning, we're going to start talking a little bit also about the uh, artificial intelligence chase. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I wrote an article on it. It's on our website this morning at realinvestmentadvice.com talking about the challenges and there, there are definitely some challenges to that artificial intelligence idea. And of course, a lot of money being piled in. And as we talked about before, there's a big deviation in the market. Uh, it's, you know, seven stocks that are, are kind of really driving the market versus everything else. We are starting to see a little bit of rotation, but it's still a very dominated market and a very few small handful of stocks. But we'll talk about some challenges that face that. But here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. The market, uh, of course, has been rallying very strongly here over the last, you know, really uh, last two months in particular. We've had a very, very sharp advance. Markets have gotten very extended. Relative strength on a variety of fronts are now really, really in overbought territory. Once we get above about 70, typically that gets you to that more overbought status in the markets where you start expecting at least a short-term correction. Now, that this, this expansion in the market, of course, has gotten as well into three standard deviation territory. The sell-off on Friday, again, markets were closed on Monday. So the sell-off that started on Friday looks to continue at least a little bit this morning at the open. So again, there's, there's a bit of room here. Uh, for the markets to correct and, and work off some of the short-term overbought condition and not even threaten the bullish uptrend. So again, you know, we've been expecting a corrective action in the markets. That would allow us to put some capital to work when we get to that point. Um, but again, we're just kind of starting this process. We need to work off some of this overbought extended condition. Again, lots of support 
42.50 on the S&P 500, 41.70. That's the 50-day moving average right now. Those are going to move up here over the course of the next you know, couple of weeks as, as we continue to progress forward. But those are kind of your key technical supports to start looking at. Um, you know, you can get all the way down to 4,000, 39.70 on the S&P. That's the 200-day moving average. Again, and, and once we get to that point, if we get down to the 200-day moving average, which is entirely possible, that's about a 9% decline from where we are now, um, you're going to get a lot of talk about, oh, the see, that was a bull trap. You know, now investors are, are back in the bear market. And that's not going to be the case at all. Uh, a correction back to the 200-day moving average, completely fine, keeps you within the bullish trend, and it gives you that ability for markets to advance through the end of the year. But again, you're going to need a correction here to work off some of this condition. Most reasonable expectations are somewhere between 4,000 and 4,100-ish uh, on the index. That'll probably give you, uh, you know, kind of this, this really good overbought condition. Whether or not we get down that far is, of course, going to be, be very uh, subject to what's happening in the markets. But a 5 to 10% correction in any given year a bull market or bear market, certainly within context of norm. So as we get this kind of corrective action going, markets could consolidate sideways and allow those moving averages to catch up to price, or you're going to get a correction in price to some of those supports. That'll give you a much better opportunity to add some, some, add some cash on the sidelines back into equity markets. You know, but again, continue to monitor the overall risk. There, there are still some concerns. Like I said, don't dismiss the concerns entirely of higher interest rates, the impact on the economy. Those threats are certainly out there. But right now, the bullish trend is intact. We want to use that to our advantage. Look for pullbacks to do that, and you'll be a lot better off. Uh, I'm your host, Lance Roberts. That's what you need to know before the bell. We'll be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, it's Tuesday as we get things underway. You know, I have, I, I like to travel. And, uh, you know, about once a year, my wife and I, I'm, obviously, because we've had kids, we've taken trips to different places, take the kids, give them experiences and all the things. We've done a lot, right? I mean, we've taken our kids, we, we certified them to scuba dive and we've gone diving with sharks and all kinds of stuff. And we've taught them to ski and, you know, they've, they've, they've had it pretty good. And, and we've gone to a lot of very interesting places that they've gotten to to visit and, and explore and uh, and they've had a great time doing that um i've been happy to support the travel industry <laughs> financially uh to do that uh, but one thing i've never had a desire to do is to get into submersible and go check out the titanic just not that is not on the top 10 of of my wanting to do things um i like taking a bit of adventure i like you know i, I don't mind taking a little bit of risk right but uh, going two miles below the surface to look at a sunken ship, not on top of my list, of course. It's a, it's a tragic thing that's going on right now. Um, um, the submersible, if you haven't heard the story, um, three people spent, and don't, and don't quote me on the numbers, but I think they spent about $250,000 a piece to get on this, this submersible, go under the water, go two miles down, and 
go see the Titanic and, and the wreck of the Titanic. Well, it's gone missing. And now there's a, a, a heavy search. U.S. Coast Guard's now in full search for the submersible. And hopefully, hopefully, um, they will find it and, and get them rescued. They have 96 hours of air. Um, on this. And so this submersible uh, vanished kind of from the radar, so to speak, about 24 hours ago, a little bit more than 24 uh, hours ago. So time is ticking uh, that they've got to do this. But this has, if, 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 you know, this has the makings of a very fascinating story. Um, we've seen a lot of movies in the past made on issues of, of people trapped and the things they have to do to survive, etc. So this is, you know, hopefully they will be rescued. Uh, we'll find out in the next few days. But uh, this this definitely has the makings of a fantastic story out of this. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's either going to be that or a terrible tragedy. That's the only way this ends. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens. But again, just swim with sharks, visit Titanic. I'll swim with sharks. I have better odds of survival. <laughs> I, and plus, I'm just claustrophobic on top of this. I mean, that does, the, you know, being being in a submersible, I just don't think I could personally do that. That mini sub that has about as much room in it as a minivan. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very small. Yeah. It's very small. And so I just don't know if I could be two miles under the water in a submersible. There was a CBS reporter that took a trip down on this thing, and he was looking around inside, and he mm -hmm. was shocked at the amount of equipment that seemed to be off the shelf, including a Game Boy controller to steer the vessel. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, no I mean, a lot of these things are, you know, put together. And again, the, 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 the amount of pressure these things have to withstand oh, yeah. when you get that deep. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, all, it's all very fascinating. I mean, you know, the science behind it is phenomenal. Yeah. But I'm not sure that it would be worth it to me No. to go underwater to look at a yeah. shipwreck prayers for the souls on board if i want to look at a wreck i'll just go home and stare at my wife watch the video so <laughs> i'm joking i'm teasing i'm just teasing you're doing so well <laughs> just teasing anyway all right a uh, lot of stuff to get into this morning um so we're talking a little bit about the ai chase i've got an article on this this morning um, on the website, and we kind of dig into this um, to a little bit further degree. We've, we've touched on this uh, topic a couple of times previously, um, particularly as, as this kind of AI chase was really kind of getting underway. But I spent some time over the last week or so um, really kind of digging in to what's driving this kind of behind the market. And again, we, we've talked about, you know, the fundamentals of it. Um, you've got a very narrow advance, Apple, Microsoft, Google, NVIDIA, you know, the companies that are kind of leading the way in the artificial intelligence space. You know, those stocks have had just a phenomenal, and primarily it's mostly been NVIDIA this year, um, which is now a trillion-dollar company. But they've had just a fantastic run this year. NVIDIA is up like 160% this year. And, you know, this is, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Except for the fact that ultimately you've got to have the earnings to support that price, right? It's great to chase the stock and it's great to run it up. But if you're trying to buy it now, you've got to say, okay, well, what is the thesis that's going to justify this price versus the earnings that they're going to make? And, you know, it was interesting because very quietly behind the scenes, NVIDIA has now, you know, put out 
a filing for a $10 billion shelf offering in common stock, preferred stock, depository shares, debt securities, warrants, stock purchase contracts, and stock purchase units. Not surprising. And, you know, when you have this big of an advance in your stock and your stock's trading at 40 times price to sells, not surprisingly, the insiders of the company are going, hey, we need to lock some of this value in. And so they do that by particularly issuing warrants, stock purchase contracts, et cetera, which all goes into executive compensation. Um, so it's always important when you hear companies, again, we've had, a, and again, regarding the, the AI, you know, we've had a record number of companies talking about AI in their earnings calls. And, you know, over the last quarter in particular, we had a huge jump in the number of companies dropping the term AI into their, uh, into their earnings calls. And not surprisingly, they, they want to jump on the, on the wagon with everybody else, right? If, if I can mention the word AI and it makes my stock price go up 20%, I'm going to throw AI into my earnings call somewhere. And so it's always important to watch what companies do more than what they say. And if NVIDIA knew with certainty that this was going to keep going on to infinity, they wouldn't be selling stock now. Right. If, if they were un, in, under the, the impression that they could sustain this earnings growth indefinitely, why would you lock in prices now? So always pay attention to what companies are doing versus what they're saying. Um, and again, this, but this does have a bit of, of reflection back to the dot-com bubble. Because... We saw the same thing back during the dot-com bubble. We've talked about this previously, is that you know everybody, regardless of whether they had anything to do with the internet or not, they were dropping the word internet, web, whatever, inside of their earnings reports. And, of course, at the time, all you do was throw up a web page, and you said, oh, we had this many eyeballs on our web page, and then people go, oh, that's great, and they would just run the stock price up. Of course, eventually the one thing that always matters came to matter, which was valuations. And we had to get to the point to where people said, hey, you know what? The price of the stock just, they can't grow earnings fast enough to justify these prices. And so you eventually had the correction in price to realign valuations with the reality of earnings and what was going on in the markets. I'm not saying that's going to happen here, today, but it is something that is going to be an issue once we get into the future. And this is where we start really kind of talking about the challenges that lay ahead. And we, we've touched on some of these previously, but one of them is just simply competition. You know, right now there's a few companies that have a lock on that AI space. Why? Because they're big companies with huge war chest and they're already kind of in that space. So it seems logical that, you know, they can really maximize the advantage and take and be kind of first movers in that artificial intelligence space, right? So Microsoft, Apple, Google, et cetera. The problem, though, is, is that as people recognize the value in that sector and they say, oh, it's really working, right? People are really starting to adopt this stuff. Then there's a whole 
unlimited source of other individuals and companies out there. They can go, oh, well, I can build that product and I can build it cheaper. Maybe not as good, but it's definitely cheaper and it's effective or it's a new niche of that same area. And so what what these things will breed ultimately is more competition. So that when you have more competition, this is capitalism at work. So when everybody runs around talking about how capitalism's broken, you can just point to the AI space and go, no, it's not. Because as companies create opportunity, other people will fill those gaps with new opportunities. Well, the problem with competition is that it reduces profit margins. Again, right now, NVIDIA has the lock on GPUs in that space, but AMD and some company we haven't even heard of yet may come up with a new, faster, better, prettier, tastes better GPU that they can sell at a cheaper price, forcing NVIDIA to start cutting prices. So competition works, but that impacts earnings and valuations. Come back. I've got a clip from uh, a gentleman in the AI space, and he very, says some very interesting things about the competition in AI. We'll, talk, we'll go through that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So, as I said before the break, this uh, talking a little bit about the AI speculation, which is, you know, very subject. And, of course, getting a lot of comparisons back to 1999. One of the issues, though, as I was saying, is that the expectations, and this is always the case in an early bull market, everybody just starts forgetting that ultimately valuations matter, earnings matter, and a lot of the, the hype that is being put into AI and how it's going to change the world simply won't come to fruition. Now, a lot of it will, but some of the more extreme things are just simply not going to happen, and they never do. It didn't happen during the Internet bubble, um, and it won't happen this time. But Elevation's Roger McNamee was on CNBC here recently and, and really summed up a lot of the concerns. I've got his clip here. I'm just going to play it for you. So you're watching our live stream right now. Uh, you'll be able to watch it, but you'll be able to hear it. And again, there's really no charts or anything to keep up with. So you can just listen to the commentary. But I think you'll get the the, the juxt of what he's getting to and you know why the issue of competition in particular and the issue of, of expectations is potentially a risk to the current AI chase. So here you go. Uh, this morning, early Facebook and Google Investor Elevation Partners co-founder Roger McNamee. Roger, great to have you back. I don't think you're, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you're comparing this AI structural change to crypto or the metaverse, or are you? No, I, Carl, the, the big thing that's comparable is that the incentives of the system are not aligned with the incentives of society. So if you wanted to do AI properly, you would do it the way that people are doing in drug discovery, which is you have a highly curated training set and you put a great deal of effort into making sure that whatever outputs come out are always going to be accurate. Today's things that they're calling AI, particularly the generative AIs like what OpenAI makes with GPT-4 and ChatGPT, these are literally 
just BS generators. They have no verified content in them, and the results are incredibly unreliable. And the notion that we're going to apply this to things like search, it's just it's going to result in just one bad outcome after another. Uh, you, what you're saying reminds me of what the B of A desk said last week, and that is that the NVIDIA quarter uh, and the guidance and the actual dollars uh, being marked as a result of all of this made them believe that the market's going to sniff out any kind of uh, phony association with AI, that you can put it next to your name, but it's not going to, the market's not going to reward you necessarily the way it has NVIDIA. You disagree? Well, the key thing with NVIDIA is every time you make a large language model, you spend something like half a billion dollars on NVIDIA chips. That's real money. And the trick here is that the guys at OpenAI are trying to create the illusion that what they're doing is inevitable. And yet there is no obvious business model. There's no way to monetize this other than with surveillance capitalism. And we know from social media how much harm that causes. And so what you're looking at here is a battle between the open AI guys trying to create the sense of inevitability and the reality of the marketplace saying, wait a minute, guys, interest rates are now 5%. Half a billion dollars in parts just to do each training set that you do plus the labor, plus if, if you do this properly, whatever the costs are of curating the data, that's too high in a 5% interest rate environment when you have businesses with no obvious business model. But isn't, isn't the business model, isn't it going to change everything? And I know there's a lot of dangers and a lot of worries about AI, but that it's going to make everything more productive and more efficient and lead to all this technological innovation and the way that the internet did ultimately improving the way we do everything. Well, that's what they want you to believe. But there's literally no evidence that today's technology can do that. I mean, the search engine results, you need to do fact checking on a search engine. That literally defeats the purpose of a search engine. And, you know, you see these stories. I mean, there was a story last week about the lawyer. You have to do that with Google, too. I'm not disputing that, but I'm not saying that that isn't progress. Right. When you have a thing with Google, Google gives you a long list of potential sources. This is going to give you one answer that sounds tremendously authoritative. And yet it has what they like to call hallucinations, which are basically just nonsense, made up things. And the point here is they could do really great work. AI has enormous potential. The trick here is you need to change the incentives. You need everything to operate where the, the executives who are leading these projects have an incentive to protect the people who use it, to ensure that the content produces accurate results. And neither of those things exist today. And until it does, until you see those things driving the industry, the products that they make are going to suck. Joining us. Uh- and that's uh, the, the kind of uh, the summation line there. But it's, it's a very, you know, and what he makes is some very valid points. And again, you know, um, the comparison to the dot-com bubble is important. The comparison back then was is that the Internet was going to change everything. And the Internet was going to make everything better and make us more productive. And it created these vast opportunities of expectations of massive fortunes being built by these companies. Well, it did change everything, right? 
the internet did change the way we work. The internet did change all of the things that we do, how we access information, how we get information. Um, social media has changed the way that we have done all of these things. Um, but there's obviously also, as he points out, obvious harms to these issues. And one of the, the key notes, and as he was making that statement, is that the really only use for AI is capitalistic surveillance, right? Which is kind of social media. And the, this idea of surveillance capitalism, of utilizing data to surveil Americans, et cetera, to extract capital from them is not really what you want. That's not a beneficial use of artificial intelligence. That really doesn't make us better as a society. But the important thing, though, is that the, 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 the rewards of the Internet during the dot-com bubble never came to fruition in a lot of cases. The expectations of massive earnings growth and massive profitability never occurred. And a, and a lot of the reasons that it didn't was because the Internet made everything cheaper. Right. In other words, if I was going to provide a product because now everybody's online on the Internet and everybody's selling the same product, the only way that I'm going to get the sales is by what? I can't deliver it any faster. I can't. I, my product's exactly the same as somebody else's. So the only thing I have to compete on is price. And so it drove down prices. It made things cheaper. And this is why we also had to start exporting a lot of our labor costs. We had to export our, our inflation to import deflation so we could sell things cheaper on the Internet. So the, the, the end result of what happened in the dot-com bubble is, yes, it made us all more productive, brought down cost, but it also weakened the economic fabric within the country. And AI has that same problem going forward. Um, he made a, a, a Doug Cass, a colleague of mine, run Seabreeze Partners, um, made a good statement. He says, are you paying anything for chat GPT? And this is really to Roger McNamee's point about, you know, how do you make money with a thing, right? If you're just going to do Google search results and it's just going to give you an answer rather than a series of links, you still don't pay for Google, right? Right. Uh, and they get paid by ads, right? But but you don't pay anything to use a Google search. So what's the, what's the business model? Um, are you paying anything for ChatGPT? Microsoft and Google are spending enormous amounts of money producing ChatGPT and Bard. These NVIDIA H100 products sell for $270,000 a pop. And this is what Roger McNamee was saying. Like, you're spending half a billion dollars every time you develop one of these sets, Right. Not kidding, I have never seen anything like it. This is another impediment to growth as only a few companies can spend at scale on this type of stuff. The 8-CPU baseboard is running $195,000. They may make about $190,000 of gross profit on per H100 sold. So you're talking about spending a lot of money, right, to make money. And there's only a few companies that can do that kind of spend to generate these products. Right? Think about it today. If you wanted to go out and build an AI product, you're going to have to have an immense amount of capital just to buy the, the GPUs and the boards just to start your, your work. Right, And so how many people have access to that kind of capital to do that? So this is going to be problematic, so to speak, in terms of some of the expectations getting built into 
what's going on with AI. In fact, um, I, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. So I wrote this article last week. It's on our website today. But this morning on Yahoo Finance, their article, lead article today is the AI hype bubble is getting out of control. And it's kind of that same thing. You know, and, and here's a quote from, from their story. I'm not saying generative AI is internet bubble type of stuff. It is. Um, but it has true game-changing promise for companies and, by extension, their profits. But how freely AI is being talked about is becoming a red flag from an investment standpoint. When everyone is doing something and investing, it's often the wise question to consider doing the opposite. And, and this is the key statement. Check valuations on any company discussing AI. Make sure said company is profitable and generating cash and question if what they are working on with respect to AI is truly fresh. And fresh AI is kind of the interesting thing because we've actually been doing AI for a decade. This is not new. It is just a new moment in the market. The market needed something to latch onto in terms of generating you know, some growth, right? And AI was it. We've been doing AI for a decade. This has been, we've been talking about this for a long time. So what is going to be the new, what is the new thing that AI is going to be that's going to generate all these products and profits that we weren't doing already? And, and I'm not saying there's not a lot of this to come because it will. We'll see a lot of these things being developed and new ideas and new inventions. But again, also, valuations ultimately that matter and whether or not the revenue can ultimately be generated all right be right back after the break don't go away the real investment show so welcome back to the show today uh, about 6.45 as you get ready to kind of uh, get close to early market, pre-market activity. So again, right now, futures are pointing a little bit lower, but generally about after 7 a.m. Uh, Central Standard Time, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, um, market kind of pre-market activity gets a little bit more active. So we'll should, you know, if there's going to be any improvement in the futures this morning, it should start happening here in about 15, 20 minutes. So we'll see a little bit of economic data out this morning. Nothing really important. Federal Express, though, reports earnings today. And that's going to be, you know, that's kind of one of your key economic indicators, right? Um, are we ordering and shipping more stuff? And we've heard some recent comments from shippers like UPS, etc., that activity was slowing down. So you know, we'll kind of be watching Federal Express this morning to see what their earnings are because, again, you know, that's kind of a key, a kind of a key economic indicator. You know, it's just as, you know, if the consumption rate is slowing down, if the consumer is indeed slowing down, it should be reflected in a reduced number of packages being shipped. All right, it's just kind of a, a real-time indicator. So we'll see what they say this morning about the last quarter. Um, whether or not that's getting stronger or weaker. And they'll kind of give us some indication um, you know, going forward. Now, tomorrow is also Winnebago. And one of the kind of those, you know, I, I guess for me, it's, it's been a little bit of a strange phenomenon. But ever since the pandemic shutdown, people have been just going out and buying Winnebago's like crazy. Um, you know, I, I guess you, you have to kind of have that, you know, idea that you're going to drive a Winnebago around the country and 
go go see things. And but it, it seemed like there was a very big surge in people buying Winnebago's to go, you know, travel in or live in or whatever. I guess housing costs were pretty expensive, so maybe it's cheaper to live in a Winnebago. Um, but you know, that's also but that's a very discretionary higher end spending item. Right, that's not something the guy making fifty grand a year goes. Oh, I think I'll go buy a Winnebago, and you know they're just trying to pay bills. So it'll be interesting to kind of pay attention to what Winnebago says um, tomorrow because that'll kind of give you that look at the kind of the upper income limits of of what people are spending money on. Then also tomorrow is KB Homes. Of course, we've been talking about the housing market. Is that starting to show some signs of improvement? Our home builders and home builders have been trading near all time highs. So. Again, the outlook from the market on home builders is fantastic. The question is whether or not the home builders see it that way. And Steelcase Furniture, of course, they make office furniture. This is going to be a really interesting one because we've talked about the issue with commercial real estate. Uh, lots of empty office buildings, commercial real estate under a lot of pressure right now. And, you know, this, this problem of getting people to come back to work. Right, this whole work from home thing that we started, companies are now going, man, that was the worst idea ever <laughs> to do this work from home thing in 2020. Because now I can't get them to come back to work. Well, if I don't, if I'm having to do hybrid or, you know, more remote work, I don't need as much furniture. So Steelcase, of course, makes office desks and chairs and all these, you know, cabinets, et cetera, for office buildings. Um, so their earnings report tomorrow is going to be very telling about whether or not we're seeing, because if we're seeing a return to office, right, as a lot of companies have talked about, we should see them buying furniture, chairs, et cetera. So their earnings report, do we see an improvement in their earnings? That should be a good kind of leading indicator. So the next couple of days should give us a couple of clues about kind of what's going on within the economy. Are things getting better? Are we starting to see an improvement that would match the increase in earnings expectations. Because, again, if you take a look at earnings expectations, Wall Street says that quarter four was the trough in earnings. Quarter one was an improvement over quarter four. And we're about to, to launch quarter two earnings here in just the next 10 days. Um, is that earnings trend going to continue? And are we going to continue to see improved earnings? And the only way you see improved earnings from here, which is what Wall Street expects, Wall Street expects corporate earnings to be back to record highs by the end of next year. But the only way you get there is to have a recovery in economic activity and no recession. Can't have a recession and have earnings rise. Those, those two don't go together. So, you know, what we kind of see over the next couple of days could give us a little bit of clue about – what to expect during the second quarter earnings season. Of course, earnings estimates have been coming down a little bit for the second quarter, but not a lot. Um, so we'll see. But again, this this uh, you know this this issue of you know return to work, and I, and I thought this was interesting because you know previously we have talked about things like high-speed rail you know california has been working on this high-speed rail for ever <laughs> and they have uh, still uh, you know have not really found a way to get that completed uh of course in texas they were talking about building a high-speed rail between houston and dallas and that has been just an ongoing fight over right-of-ways and, and money and everything else. But the, the, the real issue becomes, is it viable, 
right? You know, will people ride on these, you know, high-speed rails, and will they take mass transit? And the whole goal is to try to move people more towards mass transit. And this has been a, a, a bet for a while. And investors had been investing into big cities on the expectation of building, you know, corporate office buildings, building, you know, investing into mass transit, all these type of things. And a lot of that was being done through debt, so, you know, cities would issue a bond. Um, California is a good example, and the high-speed rail would issue, issue debt to pay for the high-speed rail. And so investors would buy the bonds on expectations that that bond would eventually pay off because of the revenue being generated from these mass transit systems or from building buildings, you know, whatever it was. And interesting article on the Wall Street Journal today, Wall Street is betting against America's downturn. Uh, sorry, I misread that. Sorry. So I was talking about downturns. Wall Street is betting against America's downtowns, not downturns. It's Freudian slip. Uh, investors are paying, and so this is a quote, investors are paying less for bonds linked to New York subways and buses. Downtown-focused real estate investment trusts trade at less than half of their pre-pandemic levels. Bondholders are demanding extra interest to hold office building debt. Downtowns have been a mother load for American cities over the years, providing billions of dollars in tax revenue, along with their distinctive skylines. In turn, investors bet on downtown office towers or on trains and buses delivering workers to them, and they can generally trust they held a winning hand. Here's the problem. Let's talk about Houston in particular, because that's where I live. Houston is becoming what you call a donut, which is nobody lives downtown now, and everybody's moving out to the suburbs. Why? Crime. And this is, this is a, a burgeoning problem in major cities, not just Houston, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, etc. It's crime, right? Theft, all kinds of stuff. So nobody wants to, you know, it's not safe. Um, here in Houston, there is a street corner, and they were just publishing the statistics of this uh, last week. Within 1,000 square feet, there were 79 violent crimes last month. Within 1,000 square feet. So this, and, and there's an area called the Galleria Um which is Midtown for Houston. Now there's downtown, there's Midtown, which is the Galleria area. And the Galleria area used to be a very nice place to go to. Big mall, high rises. Um, and it was kind of like a, a, a downtown Houston had gotten moved into this Midtown area. So a lot of businesses, lots of activity. Tremendous amount of crime now. It's not safe to go to the Galleria. Uh, we won't even let our kids go down there anymore. Um, they used to go down to you know, shopping, hang out with friends or whatever. You just can't do that. It's not safe. So people are moving out of the cities, right? They're moving to places where it's, it's safer. And then, of course, this whole issue of work from home has really devastated these downtown areas because people are going, man, you know, and, and you know, especially in Houston, to drive to downtown, you, you deal with an hour's worth of traffic to, you know, if you live out in the suburbs, it's an hour, hour and a half to drive downtown. Parking is a nightmare. Then you work in the office building all day trying to get food, whatever, 
you know, it's all there. Uh, but then you've got to drive out and all this traffic in the evening. And so when people, this work from home thing, and people said, I don't, wait, you know, I don't have to spend an hour and a half, hour, hour and a half on the freeway to drive to work and an hour, hour and a half to get back home to my family at night. I can work from home. This is awesome. They don't want to go back downtown, right? So these downtowns, and it's not, and I'm just using Houston as an example, again, because I live here, but, you know, this is the same thing that is going on in, in Chicago, New York, L.A., you know, all these areas, these these bets that investors were making. And this is why it's so important to understand when you're buying municipal bonds in particular to understand what type of muni bonds you're buying and what it's backed by. You know, and so this is, you know, one of our theses of muni bonds is you only buy bonds on stuff that people have to have. Right. So you buy mud districts. So these are your utilities, um, you know, Things like school districts where people have to pay taxes for kids to go to school, whether or not they have kids or not is irrelevant. You still pay school taxes. So you pay, you buy muni bonds and things where there's a guaranteed revenue stream going to be there because people want their trash taken off. People want their water delivered to their house, you know, those type of things. So stay with municipal bonds that do that. Be careful with bonds, and especially now uh, because of what's going on. And this is a good point made by the Wall Street Journal today is be careful with bonds that are linked to things like general revenue or transit or buildings, especially downtown, because those may not heal anytime soon at the rate we're going. All right, be right back after the break. Top of the hour. Take some of your questions and comments as well. Show's going to kick on. Just keep on rolling. Yesterday, we had a huge debacle with our stream, but we got it fixed today. So the show will continue right after this break for another hour continue to talk uh, talk about the markets your money as we approach uh, the opening bell we'll keep you up to date and take your questions and comments along the way don't go away i'm your host lance roberts be right back now it's the real investment show with lance roberts presented by ria advisors and welcome back to the show this morning it's the, it is the real investment show i'm your host lance roberts of course and uh, also filling in normally uh on the radio station we broadcast on, KCV here in Houston. Um, Chris Alcedo is generally on this time of the morning, but we're filling in for him this morning while he's on vacation, so you get an extra hour of me this morning. Um, we are going to open up the phone lines for you, though, so if you do want to call, and we, we do have the problem fixed from yesterday, <laughs> but um, if you want to get, well, hopefully, yes, fingers crossed, uh, 281-558-5738 is the phone number, so you can feel free to give us a call, answer your questions about markets, money, investing, whatever you want to talk about. Happy to do it, 281-558-5738. And if you have questions uh, and you're watching our YouTube live stream right now at The Real Investment Show, feel free to uh, drop a comment or a question there and brent and i will be monitoring that and answer your questions also so feel free to uh post your questions either place we'll answer your questions live here on the show um so in the last hour we were talking a bit about this whole issue of generative ai and and you know what that future looks like and again you know there's a tremendous amount of benefit to what ai can do for us right i mean you know, um, we talk about the stories of when I was growing up. My dad would always ask me questions. And, of course, you know, I always made up really good answers. I thought they were good-sounding answers anyway. And my dad would just look at me and say, go look it up and come give me the answer. And, of course, we had a, a set of encyclopedias at the house and a subscription to National Geographic, and that's what we read. 
So I'd have to go research whatever the question was, and then I would have to come back, give my dad a basically a, a short synopsis of what I learned. And of course, you know, today we don't have to do that. We just simply type in a, a question on Google and you get a response, although it's somewhat filtered. And the promise of AI is, is that with, with Google, when you go into a Google search bar and you put in your question, it gives you a lot of links to our other articles or other sources, those type of things that will you then have to go read to get your answer. And so you may have to read two or three things to try to get the answer you're looking for. The issue with AI, though, of course, is that it doesn't give you the links. It just gives you the answer. You know, what is an elephant? And it says, okay, this is what an elephant is. And it doesn't give you links to go explore these things. So there's no learning that we have to do as humans. We just read the answer. We didn't have to go through the work of the research, which is how we learn. You know, one of the, the, the best things that was ever told to me when I graduated college is the gentleman that was giving our speech on graduation day. He says, you've learned nothing in college. You've learned nothing. When you go out into the world, you're going to realize, I know you're leaving all today and you all have your degrees and you think you're the smartest thing since, you know, sliced bread. But when you go out in the world, you're going to figure out very quickly, you don't know anything. You're going to learn a lot when you go out into the, the real business world. It says the only thing you learned in college was how to source and research information. That's what you learned. But see, with AI, we don't even do that anymore. We don't require people to research and learn. We just say, here's the answer. So the question becomes is, how does this impact ultimately, you know, our futures? Does it make us better? Does it make it a, a better environment that we're in? And as we were taught, as you know, we we're playing the quote, the quote from Roger McNamee earlier on the show talking about, this idea of surveillance capitalism and what we already have learned from social media in particular is this idea of surveillance capitalism. How do I make money off of you, right? Well, I watch everything that you do, what you look at, what you, you know, what you click on. I'm surveilling you. And then from that surveillance, I can then market to you specific things that you will buy because you have an interest in them. And as human beings, we always want what we want, right? So this idea of surveillance capitalism is making money off of your activities. And that's the, that's the promise of AI is that it will greatly enhance this idea of surveillance capitalism on Americans. And it's hard to say that anything has good has come out of surveillance capitalism. You know, if we take a look at the economic development and the social development since the implementation of social media, it's hard to make any statement that says things have gotten better. Because of social media. Have we gotten smarter? Have we become more tolerant? Have we become um, you know, more connected 
in society because of social media. That was the promise, right? Social media, we would all be connected. We'd all have access to be able to share pictures and it would be a wonderful thing and we would be able to communicate and, and stay connected to our loved ones no matter where they were in the world. It was going to be an awesome outcome, but did it come out that way? And this is the risk of AI. This artificial intelligence, this generative AI. And this is going to be the issues that we that we deal with. Particularly as this continues to develop and we move forward. Then, of course, the question is, is how do we make money at it? That's that's going to be the big promise. Again, the people that develop, you know, there's an old saying about gold, right? You, you can either buy the gold or you can buy the people that provide the picks and shovels. And so the companies that are going to make the money up front are the people that provide the picks and the shovels, right? So that's NVIDIA with the GPUs. That's going to be companies that make the databases. That's going to be the companies that generate the technology to take this AI and gather the information and produce it in some type of usable end result. Those are the companies that are going to benefit early on from the impact of AI. The question longer term, and this is this is where we went back to talking about the internet and the dot-com bubble, and what we found out is that what the end result will be is a lower cost of environment because of competition. So things that people were paying a lot of money for up front to get into the space will become dramatically cheaper down the road. In other words, the picks and the shovels will become much cheaper down the road because of competition and also because of saturation as we get to the point that ai is full so so think about it this way i'm a new company and i want to i want to build out an ai project so i'm gonna have to spend half a billion dollars to buy all the chips the gpus etc that i need to to do my development to create my product so a big upfront spend but going forward, I don't need to spend as much money because once I've built the base of my company, right, once I've got my product developed, then I go into kind of maintenance mode and upgrades, which aren't nearly as capital intensive. They're still capital intensive, right? There's still money made, but not the same amount of initial spend. That will, of course, impact the earnings of the companies providing those picks and shovels. They don't need as many. So these are the things that we have to think about as we go forward and talk about AI and what it means. All right, quick break. We'll come back. Got a couple other topics to get into this morning. Don't go away. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show. So, again, I'm your host, Lance Roberts, for the Real Investment Show. If you're just tuning in and expecting Chris Salcedo, sorry, he'll be back next week. He's on vacation, so I'm filling in for the next hour. Taking your questions and comments here, anything about money, investing, capital markets, uh, economics, etc., feel free. Give us a call at 281-558-5738, 281-558-5738, if you'd like to ask your question live or on our YouTube channel. Simply ask your question on our YouTube chat at Real Investment Show, and we'll be happy to answer them for you. In fact, I've got a few questions to get into already. So um, 
One question was, is covered call strategies um, are becoming a lot more popular as of late because of the idea of income generation. So without getting too technically involved in all of this, uh, all a covered call option is, is or strategy is you own some underlying stocks. Say you own a company like Microsoft, which has had a big run higher. So as the price moves up, you can then write an option. I can I have the ability to, to sell a contract that says I am willing to sell Microsoft at a certain price at a certain date in the future. That's all that means. So um, last Friday was a good example. That was quadruple witching on the market. All options expired. So if I had, had written a contract to sell Microsoft at a certain price on the third Friday of March, which options expiration is always on the third Friday of each month. And if the price of the stock was above that level, then I had to sell the stock at the price I agreed to. So as an example, um, let's just, you, you know, kind of using Microsoft as an example. Last Friday, the stock was trading right around 342. Now, let's say that, and of course, just prior to that, the stock had reached a peak that was very close to about 335. And so at that point, I wrote an option that says, I'm willing to sell my Microsoft at $335 on the third Friday of June. And so on third Friday of June, the stock closed at 342. So I had to sell my shares of Microsoft at 335, even though the price of the stock was at $342. So I lost that gain. But what I did get paid, I got paid a premium for that contract. So let's say I got paid $3 for the contract per 100 shares. So if I owned 100 shares of Microsoft, sold it for $3, I had $3,000 paid to me in order to sell those shares. So now I didn't really sell my shares at 335. I really sold them at 338, but the stock still closed at 342. So I missed out on that upside. So that's the risk of writing call options. So yes, you can certainly take advantage of high prices and write call options and make money at it. But just understand that you're going to generate a lot of capital gains taxes. You're going to get called in a, in a, in a bull market you're going to get called away a lot. So you're going to keep losing shares of the company that you're writing the options on and have to figure out a way to buy them back. And that's a very tough challenge for most investors to do that. So just something to, to kind of understand. Uh, let's go to the phones, pick up with Mike out in Tomball. Mike, welcome to the show this morning. How are you? Good morning, Lance. Enjoy your show. I listen to it a couple times a week. So. Awesome. So I had a question about the possibility of a recession. There's a lot of indicators that point to a recession later part of this year, first part of next year, and I wanted to know what your opinion was about that. Sure, um, it's 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 you know that's this is the big conundrum, Mike. Um, you know we do have a lot of indicators. In fact, I've got an I've got an article coming out on this on Friday on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com, talking specifically about this point is that there are a new a number of indicators, the inverted yield curves, right? So if we talk about the, the yield curve between the 10-year and the two-year, that yield curve is in it, it is nearing one of its lowest levels on record. 
and has always preceded a recession. The leading economic indicators have always, when being this negative, as they are now, have always pointed to a recession. The problem, and then, of course, just not even to mention the Fed's hiking rates in order to slow the economy down, and, and, and given the fact we've had one of the most aggressive rate hike campaigns in history, that has always and, and has always devolved into a recession. And when inflation is above 5%, you've always had a recession. So, yes, Mike, to your point, tons of indicators that suggest a recession is coming. But the problem is the market's saying, no, it's not, right? I mean, everybody, everybody invested in the markets right now are hoping for this soft landing scenario. You know, the one thing we can say is that economic growth has slowed markedly. Um, because of that $5 trillion in stimulus that we pumped into the economy, we had this huge surge in economic activity. We were growing at 8 9 10% in nominal economic growth in 2022. I'm sorry, in 2021. Um, when we got into 2022, we began eroding that growth. And we talked a little bit about this last week. You know, imagine that you're sitting on top of a very tall hill and you want to get down into the valley, which is below sea level. So you've got to go all the way down the hill, you know, to get to sea level. And then you have to go down into the valley to get below sea level. Well, we've already been coming down that hill, right? We're not in negative growth territory yet, but we're heading in that direction. And it's taking us a lot longer to get there because there's still a lot of stimulus in the system. And that stimulus is getting worked through. And one of the caveats that's coming up, and the one thing that we need to keep a watch on, is the student loan payment issue. There's a couple of rulings going on in the Supreme Court right now that... If they, if they disallow Biden's student loan forgiveness, right, and there's a chance that that's going to happen, then student loan payments are scheduled to restart by August. That's going to be about $15 billion a month in money that is no longer going in the economy. All these people that have student loan debts of, of roughly $350 a month that they didn't have to pay. They were spending that on retail goods, et cetera. That was helping keep this economic activity going. That could be the thing that really slows retail sales, which are 40% of PCE, which is 70% of GDP. So that could be the one thing that really pushes us towards a recession fairly quickly. X that. We'll still probably have a recession, but that's probably somewhere in early 2024, maybe first, second quarter. And it should be a fairly mild recession. And the only reason I say that is because there's still a lot of money in the system. Don't forget that we just passed $1.7 trillion in spending in the Inflation Reduction Act that's not actually reducing inflation. It's actually keeping inflation fairly elevated in terms of a lot of prices. But... That money is still circulating and coming into the economy. So that's giving some spending power. That's another thing that's kind of delaying this recession onset that everybody's expecting. So, again, you know, to your point, we'll probably have a economic slowdown, light recession early next year. And that's only because we were starting from 9, 10, 11% economic growth. If we had been starting with economic growth at where we were, pre-pandemic, which is around 2%, we would already be in a very deep recession. But it's only because of where we were coming from because of all that previous stimulus 
that by the time we get to the, the low of this economic contraction, likely first of next year, it'll be a recession, but it won't be a really deep one. So, uh, look, I know it's super confusing. It's super confusing for me um, trying to parse all this data, trying to figure it out. And again, it's all estimates. So we'll have to figure out when we get there. But again, this has been a very frustrating environment considering what the economic data says and all these indicators say we're going to be in this this fairly deep recession. Just haven't gotten there yet. Um, Rick, welcome to the show. How can I help you this morning? Uh, good morning. Uh, I, I, caught, I caught the back end of your show yesterday, mm-hmm. and you were talking about NVIDIA stocks. Right. Uh, the situation I bought in NVIDIA at a low rate, and I'm trying to analyze and see what's going to happen when the quarterly profits come in. Are they going to downgrade it? Or should I just stay in? Or should I sell there and then re-get into it? Or should I just stick to it and just leave it alone? Well, it's a couple things. One, how big of a position in your portfolio is it? Is it small? Is it large? It is a small. I consider it small. Uh, okay. I, I got in at... Uh, well, let's say, just say it's, it's not a huge amount of money. That's fine. So what I would do is, as, as look, NVIDIA is a great company. Uh, they have a great product. They're very overbought right now. So let's say, let's just say, for instance, that you bought, it it's, makes up 2% of your portfolio. I'm just picking a number. So look at that. So when you originally bought the position and it was 2% of your portfolio, it's probably now 3 3.5% of your portfolio because it's grown so much, right? It's up 165% for this year. It's grossly overvalued. It's trading at 40 times price to sales. And it's a very extended price-wise. It is going to correct at some point. So what the, the way to manage a position like that is just to reduce the position back to where you originally bought it. So if it was originally 2, it's now 3 in your portfolio, 3% of your portfolio, just sell 1% of it and maintain the 2%. You know, it's, it's like going to Vegas, right? And you win some money, you put a little bit in your pocket, right? You don't put it all back on the table. Uh, you know, so you want to event, so what you want to wind up do is just wind up playing with house money, which is kind of what you're effectively doing by taking some profit. And then when it does pull back, then you can increase your position back to 3%, but you'll do that on a better risk reward basis. And that's just how you kind of manage that risk over time in the portfolio. You know, eventually the NVIDIA is going to disappoint, but that could be several years from now and you have a, another big correction in the stock. But for now, to, to ride that trend and, and to do that, just simply take a little bit of profit. Nothing, you know, there's an old saying, you never went broke taking a profit. <laughs> so, And that's just always a good way to manage your portfolio. All right, quick break. We'll come back. I got some more questions on YouTube. Also taking your phone calls here, 281-558-5738. Be right back. Don't go away. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It's uh, 7.33 Central Time as uh, markets getting ready to open up. Uh, Dow futures right now pointing down about 107 points. S&P's down about a quarter percent, and the Nasdaq's down about 18 bips this morning. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very muted open. Uh, again, had a little bit of a sell-off starting on Friday. Again, this correction of the market uh, is very needed. And as we start moving in towards the end of the month, we're likely going to see a bit more of a sell-off. Uh, portfolios need to rebalance for the end of the quarter, which is coming up very quickly. And because of the big run-up this year in particularly technology stocks, a lot of mutual funds will have to rebalance those positions, put them back to market weight. 
um, potentially buy a little bit of fixed income to, to bring up that weight if they're running a balanced portfolio. So we could see a little bit of volatility pick up here over the next week or so as we head into the end of the quarter. And then, of course, starting in July, right after 4th of July, we're going to kick off earnings season again. So as soon as we finish it, it seems like it's starting again, but there we are. Um, Take your questions and comments here, as I said, both on YouTube as well as on the phone. If you want to call in live, 281-558-5738. That's 281-558-5738. A uh, question was uh, from uh, on YouTube was, is there a case for buying dividend stocks in 2024? And the answer to that is yes. And the, there's two reasons that you want to own dividend stocks. First of all, is that whenever you buy a company that pays a dividend, it's a better steward of capital, typically, over pure growth companies. Um, it also is part of your total return. So when you're looking at building a portfolio to last a long time, so if you're investing, if you're speculating in the markets and you're looking to make money this week, next week, then None of this I'm about to say matters, right? You just buy the highest growth, highest momentum companies, and you know that's how you trade that. But if you're looking to invest long term, you're looking to build wealth for retirement, there's three stools that go to that. One is growth, so you do need capital appreciation, so you need companies that can grow earnings and grow value over time. But you also want them to pay a dividend because of the three legs of the stool that go into creating a long-term portfolio, you need income from bonds, right? The interest income. That also gives you protection of your capital because bonds mature at face value. It also lowers the volatility of your overall portfolio. So it's not going up and down like crazy when you have big market swings. Then you need the capital gains from the growth of your equities. That's what's going to give you your inflation adjustment on your dollars going into retirement. And then you also need the capital, the, uh, sorry, the dividends paid by companies to contribute to the total return of the portfolio. So capital appreciation, dividends, and interest income is how you build and manage a long-term portfolio. So, And now particularly going into 2024, at some point the Fed is going to start cutting rates. So right now there's a lot of money hiding out in, in 5% money markets because, you know, why take any risk if I can get 5%? But at some point as the Fed drops rates, those money market yields will track Fed funds rates lower. Those money market yields will head back to zero at some point. And yes, a lot of that money that people have been sitting on, hiding out 5% money markets for no risk, they're going to have to try to come in and buy stocks with dividends, and they'll be paying a lot more in price for those, but they'll be trying to get those yields on companies. So if you really want to kind of take advantage of the situation and front run where we're going to be, and this is why we've talked a lot lately about sector rotation, a lot of the most undervalued, out-of-favor sectors right now are those that provide the highest yields, consumer staples, et cetera. That's where you're going to find your opportunity because right now those prices are depressed, yields are high, so you can lock in higher dividend yields in anticipation of a rotation with Fed rate cuts as we move into 2024. It's a great question. Uh, I think you should think more about that. Um, so one of the other questions I got was a issue on REITs. Um, that's going on. Uh, this was from Marshall um, on YouTube. Uh, what are your thoughts about REITs going forward? Um, you know, a lot of these are down 15 to 30%, some of them more, depending on who they are. Uh, REITs are, are, you know, basically you're, you're tagging onto real estate, right? Somebody's bought a property and it's in here uh, and they're paying out part of the cash flow, et cetera, to you. So it's fine. 
just as with anything, you just have to be careful of what REIT you're buying and understanding what you're getting yourself into. I would not buy commercial real estate REITs right now. Uh, the reason is, is that we're not done with probably what's going on with the work from home situation and a lot of empty office buildings downtown. Um, I'm personally closely associated with people I know in that industry. They're close friends of mine, and they are having a really difficult time right now because it's it's a function of two things. One, nobody wants to move downtown to to buy you know to rent office space, and the people that did have big leases because of the work from home, they're downsizing those leases. So a lot there's a lot of vacant office space and commercial. Be careful of the apartment REITs right now. Multifamily is getting very, very, very overbuilt. You're about to wind up in a situation where you've got a lot of excess units and declining prices. And so, you know, that's just a function that everybody was building these multifamilies previously because that was the hot spot, particularly with, remember when we had opportunity zones under the Trump administration and he passed that law creating opportunity zones. Everybody ran out and built these multifamily apartment buildings in opportunity zones. So now we've got a lot of excess capacity. So be careful with that. Personally, we own REITs. Um, I really like uh, um, public storage because, again, we always have. it doesn't matter what goes on in the economy, good, bad, or indifferent, but you've got a place to store your stuff. So I think that that's a, a place that you can, you know, storage units, those type of things. I think that that's in the real estate space. There's opportunity there because, again, those are kind of recession-proof. And even if we do have a slowdown in the economy, it's not going to impact them as much. Those are, you know, and, and, and also a big problem with, with REITs is also the differential in, in rates, right? With the Fed at 5%, that's suppressing a lot of this real estate activity right now. As the Fed starts cutting rates, you'll start seeing a lot more opportunity in REITs. So, again, I, I would just, you know, medical REITs are all getting older. Healthcare is not going away. So that's another area that probably you'll do okay in. Like I said, just as with everything, just analyze, just don't buy a REIT just because it's really cheap in price and has a high yield. Be careful with that. Make sure you understand what kind of REIT you're buying and under, and kind of think through the process of, of the changing dynamic of our economy and what the outcome of that is likely to be. And, you, and you'll probably be fine. So uh, let's go to the phones, 281-558-5738. Jimmy, welcome to the show, sir. How are you? All right. Does the UNG fund track natural gas futures? Yeah, not well. Um, here's the problem. There's a, you know, there's a lot of these, um, you know, ETFs that track commodity prices. Um, you know, there's some on natural gas, on oil prices, on the VIX and in the very short term, if you if, now, if you're swing trading natural gas, it will work short term, like over the course of a couple of weeks to a month. But don't try to buy it long term. And the, and the reason is because of the option. The, so these don't actually own the commodity. They own options on the commodity. So these, commod, these options have to be rolled on a regular basis. And there's two things that impact options, which are a decay of premium. There's a, a time decay. So as these options approach maturity, if they're underwater, they, they reduce in value a lot and they don't recover. Um, and then the other thing is, is just the cost and expense of rolling these options over. So what happens is over time is that, uh, you know, the VIX, uh, the volatility index is a really another good example of this. If you try to buy the VIX ETFs, they don't track the volatility index well at all. 
Um, and, and so it's the same thing with UNG and, and natural gas and these type of things is that you will they will work. Right. But the issue will be is that natural gas will be up, you know, 40 percent and you'll be up 10 going you know, why didn't it work? And that's why it's, it's because of this decay of premium over time and the options. So it'll work. They work better if you can kind of time and, and nail the trade and you get it right. And so that's a bit of luck. But if you can kind of nail the trade, either up or down um, and, and do it over a very short time frame, it'll work. It just won't work over longer periods. So on a buy and hold basis, they don't tend to do well. But it's, it's you know, I wish there was better options out there. I've been looking for a long time. <laughs> just haven't found one yet other than trading the futures directly. Um, anyway, thanks for the call, Jimmy. Appreciate it. Uh, 281-558-5738. That's 281-558-5738. Um, you know, another good question, and this, this is on uh, YouTube. Um, has the moment for buying bonds passed, or is that still a fertile market? That is still a very fertile market. We have not passed the point of making gains in bonds. In fact, the the potential for a strong return in bonds over the next year is is fantastic. Um, and the reason is is because if we get into recession, rates are going to fall, and because interest rates are a function of two things. They're a function of inflation and economic growth. Interest rates are tied to both of those things. What's happening with inflation right now? Inflation is still high, but it's coming down sharply. We're down to 4% inflation now, and that's going to continue to fall. As inflation falls back towards 2% or further, economic growth is going to slow because economic growth, or sorry, inflation is a reflection of economic activity. So as economic activity continues to slow, so will inflation. And because of that, interest rates are also going to fall. And then eventually the Fed's going to cut rates back to zero. That's going to push rates down even more. So no, you have not missed the opportunity to buy bonds. In fact, we just bought some more. Uh, so we're, we're continuing to shift our duration in our bond portfolio specifically for this reason. And 2024 looks like it could be a very, very good year for fixed income. All right. Be right back after the break wrap-up show take more of your questions and comments both on youtube at the real investment show so get by our website realinvestmentadvice.com click on the link youtube show um or on the phones 281-558-5738 we'll be right back the real investment show Welcome back to the last segment of the show this morning. I'm going to have to do a little bit of rapid-fire Q&A off of YouTube because uh, y'all stacked up some questions on me while I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> so I was trying to do a lot of other things here. So let me uh, get into some of these real quick. Um, first of all, uh, so we finished up with uh, the last segment talking about, you know, is now time to buy bonds? That, uh, you know, yes, yeah, the answer is to that, that question. Um one of the other questions about 401k plans, I actually have two questions on 401k plans, one from uh, Sid and one from Matthew. Um, sometimes uh, when you start a new job, you have to wait a period of time before getting into a 401k plan. And, you know, so if you can't contribute to a 401k plan now, you can contribute to an IRA, right? So you can put money into an IRA, um, 
and get a tax deduction for that when you file taxes. And then once you become eligible for your 401k plan, then you'll want to fully maximize your contribution into your 401k plan on a pre-tax basis or depending on your age. Now, if you're young, do Ross, right? Go and pay the tax now, do Ross, get tax-free. If you're older and moving, you know, you're closer to retirement, you may want to do the pre-tax option. Depends, right? Again, you kind of got to do a little bit of your own tax work to see, you know, you know what you you know what you can save, how much you can save, etc. Um, but yeah, you can certainly put some money away today in either a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA while you're waiting to get uh, to start contributing into your 401k plan. Um, you can only contribute a maximum amount every year according to IRS rules, and whether you're over 50 or not, you can have a bit of a catch up. So if you're fully maximizing your 401k, you probably can't contribute to the IRA. You can do a spousal IRA if she's not working. So you do have some options, but this is where financial planning really kind of comes together. So, you know, Sid, if you need some help, you know, email the office, you know, go to realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the Ask a Question link, ask a question there. And, uh, you know, Danny, Richard, they'd be happy to uh, help you kind of walk through some of that. The other question on 401ks is, uh, is, a, is a good one. And because this is where, a lot of people kind of get stuck. And right now, the 401k recommendations are changing. And so do you, do you weather it out here and, and or do you kind of stay long? We On our website, if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, we have a retirement section. And under plan participants, this is you that are participating in 401k plans, we actually have some models. And, and every week we update some commentary um, about what to do with your plan. And right now, it's pretty much been just buy and hold this year because there's not been a lot of need to change things. We've recommended not being in small cap and mid cap, being mostly in an S&P 500. And the reason is, is because small and mid caps are really underperforming and international emerging markets and large cap is where the action's at. So we've been recommending be mostly in large cap right now, but we update that. There's charts, there's a, a technical chart there to help you kind of make a decision when to move out of 401k plans to reduce, you know, raise cash, you know, shift those things. Um, but that's on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, but yeah, right now, just weather it out. The, the market's doing fine. There's nothing wrong here. You're a little bit overbought. But you know, we want to use pullbacks here to support to continue adding money. So you have two options. The way to do this is when you contribute to a 401k plan, just contribute to whatever your closest money market option is. If you don't have a money market direct option, use like a short-term bond fund. And then when you get pullbacks in the market, put that money to work. Or you can just dollar cost average in either way. Um, so, all right, moving on. Um, also, you know, you know, if you are looking for tools, we have a, a website called simplevisor.com. And, you know, that we, we post models, a lot of research there. A lot of the conversations that we have on a regular basis talking about sector rotation, all that analysis is on our research site at simplevisor.com. Um, but we have some models there that you can follow. And we have an ETF model, an equity model. So we have a lot of people that, that, that often sign up and they go, well, how do I get into the model? Well, one way to do that is, is either just make the new buys. When we make new buys, just buy the new stuff that we buy when we buy it. Um, or just, you know, kind of slowly buy in. So, you know, if you've got a set amount of money, spend six, you know, divide it up into six parts and buy into the model over a six, six month period, right? Just kind of slowly ease your way in uh, to the model over time and then make changes as we make changes. And that way you can kind of replicate what we're doing, you know, in our shop. But again, th that those are just, you know, 
tools for you to use. You don't have to follow our models. It's not a required mandate or anything else, but it's just to give you ideas of kind of what to look for. And we post a lot of commentary there as well to help you manage your money better, whether it's your 401k plan or whatever it is. We give you a lot of tools to work with to help you do your own research, right? This is the key thing. And, and we're developing a lot of new tools. We're going through a whole UX design right now to make it easier for you to use. We've got educational materials coming out. So we've got a lot of stuff coming over the next year um, in regards to SimpleVisor uh, to make it even more functional for you. But there's a lot of stuff there to help you manage your money better at SimpleVisor.com. So but one of the things I was talking about earlier is this rotation that will potentially come as interest rates drop. Um, money will start to look for dividend yields. And that's going to be areas of the market that have really been unloved this year because they're kind of boring companies. They're not um, companies that, you know, are going up 160% this year like NVIDIA. Um, you know, companies like Stables, um, as an example, example, you know, that's where dividend yields are. And, um, Brent, if you can bring up this this chart on SimpleVisor, I'll share it with our audience. Um but, you know, when you take a look at, you know, some of the areas that are most unloved right now, and this is uh, the sector rotation analysis I was just talking about from uh, SimpleVisor.com, you see that staples, healthcare, utilities, energy, those are your biggest dividend yielding companies. Those are also the ones most out of favor. Now, we've seen a little bit of money flowing into those stocks over the last couple of weeks, but they're still very out of favor relative to communications, tech, transportation, which have very been, been much being chased by the markets right now um, over the course of, of the first part of this year. Um, the problem to and the question that, that I got asked was, well, those are still very overvalued. Yes, they are. And in, and when you know, but when you're talking about money moving around in the markets, money generally, you know, it's like energy. You can't create or destroy energy, right? It just changes form. And that's kind of what happens in the market. When when yields start to fall, money's gonna migrate back into the markets. And they're going to buy some of these companies that are still overvalued on a fundamental basis. But the liquidity that's being injected into the markets has to go somewhere. You're changing the form of energy from money and investment, but it's still got to be somewhere, right? You're just changing the form of that energy. And so you'll want to look for companies. And again, as we've talked about before, when you talk, when you think about this, money's going to go mostly into ETFs. People are going to chase ETFs. Uh, Staples right now has a yield of 2.32%. So money's going to gravitate towards that area. And when it does, it's going to look for companies that are the largest holders of those shares. So Procter & Gamble makes up 14% of that ETF. Uh, Pepsi makes up 10%. Coca-Cola makes up another 9%. If you take a look at, at, the, at, at XLP as a, as a function of Staples, Almost 50% of that entire ETF is in the top five stocks. That's where all that money is going to go to. So you want to look for these companies that make up very large percentages of these ETFs because that's where money will gravitate to when it comes in because that's the money coming out of money market. They're going to buy ETFs, and that's that passive indexing effect that we've talked about a lot. Um, you know, there are... You know, one of the and just kind of wrap to wrap. I'm going to get one more question in here from Kevin for more conservative and or older people thoughts on using fixed index annuities or some form of fixed income portfolio instead of bonds. Nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with a fixed annuity. Um, I have one. Um, the reason I have one is for asset protection uh, in case of a law. I'm in a lawsuit, happy business, right? Uh, financial advisory. 
So, you know, I have money as, as, a, as protected from lawsuits and judgments. Annuities are great, if, and, and there's kind of a way to analyze whether or not you need an annuity. And there's kind of three tests for that. One is you're in a lawsuit-happy business, like me, all right? You're a doctor, you're a financial advisor, et cetera, where you have a potential for lawsuits. Then an annuity is a great way to protect assets. An annuity is awesome if you need to have a guaranteed fixed income run in the future. So as you move into retirement, you say, I need, you know, $3,000 a month. My Social Security is going to give me two thousand dollars a month and i need another thousand to guarantee i can pay all my bills right then then that's kind of what we call an alpo diet you know you get everything paid for but food um so you know you say okay well how much money do you have to put into an annuity to generate a thousand dollars a month and then you have a guaranteed three thousand dollars social security and a thousand dollars from your annuity every month you've got that income guaranteed for the rest of your life lastly is is that you want a environment where you, your business owner or et cetera, and you simply just can't put enough into a 401k plan. Annuities are a great option for excess savings. They'll be after tax, but they'll grow tax deferred. So it's a great way to put away some additional savings um, as a business owner, et cetera, or if you're a high income potential, annuities, annuities are a great option. So if you fit one of those three categories, you may want to consider an annuity. Um, the the drawback to annuities is is that when you die, the funds are done, right? So there's nothing to leave to your heirs. If you want to leave money to your kids, annuities are not a great option. Costs are high. You're going to pay a big commission for them. Um, you know, just understanding that there are some some downsides to annuities. I mean, they're not. You know, a lot of the annuities are often sold. They're not. They're not built into a plan. They're not utilized properly, and they're sold to people. Um, for the commission, just understand that that's, that's part of it. Just make sure that you buy it and utilize it. It's a great tool. It's a great option if it's utilized right, right? I can drive a nail with a screwdriver, but I'm probably going to wind up with some bloody fingers. I'd rather use a hammer, right? So just use the tool properly and you'll, you'll be fine and nothing wrong with it at all. All right, that wraps up the show for the day. We'll be back tomorrow taking more of your questions and comments in the second hour of the show. Of course, it'll be the hump day edition of the Real Investment Show. Get by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. If I didn't get to your question today and you still and still want an answer to your question, just hit the Ask a Question button right there on the front of the homepage. Send it to me. I'll answer it or I'll get it to one of our great advisors and partners here at the shop and we'll get it answered for you and get you taken care of. realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.